Today's uh, scripture reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Before I introduce our guest speaker, uh, let me just uh, welcome Angela's family. Glad to have you with us for the graduation uh, this coming week. And uh, also, I think Sarah's family is coming to town um, in uh, a few days. And then uh, uh, Rachel Law's family. <laughs> Pastor Michael Chance is uh, a friend of the church. He's uh, actually known uh, the church longer than, than maybe I, even I have. He was here at the inaugural service uh, years, years ago at the MNYBA. He served uh, this area, served the, uh, the uh, churches in, in New York for decades, right, decades. And um, he spent a lot of time at the MNYBA as a, a, a minister there. And uh, I've, I've known him at the Raritan Valley Baptist Church. And most recently, he was the minister of encouragement at Graffiti. A lot of web of connections and all that. Uh, he's also a, a personal mentor, and so I really appreciate all the time that we've spent talking. Pastor Mike has his gift. He's a minister of encouragement, right? So he could be rebuking you, but you just feel encouraged. Uh, that, that, that's what, how God has gifted him. So let's welcome him as he shares God's word. Thank you, Daniel. That, that is one of the more unique introductions I've ever had. <laughs> Thank you for that. Wow, it's great to be back at Compass. I was here last year during uh, the pandemic after I think we completed the first wave and there were like 12, 14, 15 of you here. But this is uh, actually, this is like only the second or third time I've preached 
before a live audience in the last uh, number of a couple of years. So uh, this is great. I, I do pulpit supply for two Chinese churches, and one of them is just now, this month, beginning to come back and do things live. And I'll be back with them the first Sunday in June. They're in Chinatown. And uh, I haven't seen some of those folks in th almost three years now. So, uh, wow. Well, good morning. And I remember that inaugural Sunday, it was hot that day. Were any of you were even here that day? Okay, the, there are a few. You remember how hot it was that day, man? I sweated off 10 pounds, I think. It was crazy. But anyway, um, these last couple of years have been challenging. Uh, I've got a um, uh, our focus uh, uh, slide up, I think, that uh, you'll see the message title, uh, which is today, Closing Council for chaotic times. And trust me when I say that I think that uh, by describing the last couple of three years as chaotic might even be an, an understatement. Uh, we've lived through a global pandemic. We've lived through global, uh, a global pandemic, political unrest, uh, shootings, uh, violence. And, and trust me when I say that this one yesterday in Buffalo hit me hard. My, one of my first churches, actually it was my first church I served as a youth pastor in the 70s, was as a youth pastor there in Buffalo, in North Buffalo. My wife is from the area. Uh, I heard from the director of missions there yesterday, the security guard that um, uh, was killed was uh, loosely connected. His family attended the North Community uh, uh, Bible Church in Buffalo, which is one of our Frontier Association SBC churches. So they are all in mourning and dealing with grief today. So pray for the churches in Buffalo. Now I can tell you, I've lived 70 plus years and I dare say that I've probably not ever experienced such chaotic change in all my life. I was born in the 50s. I experienced and lived through the 60s. I thought the 60s were, uh, was a, a, a time of uh, cataclysmic change, a paradigm shift, but I don't even think the 60s can hold to what we have seen. So, but, but one of the things that has disturbed me and disturbed me so much is the, what it's done to the life and health of churches, of evangelical churches, especially churches here in uh, North America. Uh, we, we've, we've seen political ideologies of all manner creep in and cause division among the body of Christ. We've seen relationships fractured. We've seen some of our Christian friends defriend us on Facebook. I've even defriended one or two on, on my feed social media. We've seen churches close. We've seen pastors resigning. In fact, in a recent article that Barna published, he reported that 42% of pastors during these last couple of three years have considered resigning. And the, 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 the chaotic change has been such uh, brought so much pressure to pastors that even I considered resigning. But then I thought, I can't resign because I'm retired. I don't have a church to resign from. But, but you kind of get my drift. Now, if you want a really, really good article on the state of American Christianity today, there's a, uh, in the Atlantic Magazine is an article by Tim Alberta. 
entitled, How Politics Poisoned the Evangelical Church. Folks, it'll open your eyes, which brings me to my second slide I want to show you today. I ran across this, and I just think it is so cool. We're, we're studying the Apostle Paul's uh, letters, uh, or letter to Timothy, his second letter, and I can just imagine he would be writing this if he were writing to us here in America today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the churches of the United States of America, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't even really know where to begin with some of you. So uh, I, I kind of think that uh, uh, there's some challenging times for us as Christians and as church people. But I have good news this morning. As we take a look at these scriptures today in, in Paul's uh, uh, epistle to young Timothy. This was his final uh, letter that he wrote, his final epistle that was penned that is recorded in uh, the scriptures. He is about 70 years of age, and he is literally within weeks, if not months, uh, from his beheading and his death. I've been reading through 2 Timothy since the early part of the year and, and just really digesting and really coming to grips with his message, to, particularly to the North American church. And, and I believe that the words that we read in, in this little book, only four chapters long, they've brought tremendous refreshment to my own soul. These are his final words, to, to, not only to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus, but I believe these are his final words to us, his church, to Compass Church, to Compass Fellowship Church. And uh, uh, the first century uh, where uh, Paul was existing there in that cell, in that Mamertine prison in Rome, it was a chaotic and perilous time. Uh, but I want to encourage you with this. Today, if you're worried or even anxious or fearful, even if you're even a little bit afraid as we try to do life here in the 21st century, amidst all that we've experienced in the last couple of years, I want you to hear me today. These final words bring great words of encouragement and counsel if we will hear from our elder statesman in the faith, the Apostle Paul. But first, I want to try to ascertain the predicament that Paul finds himself in. You know, when Luke finishes writing uh, the book of Acts, um, he is, Paul is in prison, but he's in a, this was his first imprisonment, and it was not, it was so different from the prison that we find he's in now. He was under house arrest, and he could come and go. He did a lot of ministry, though he was under guard, and uh, he was, in fact, had some constraints. Uh, that first imprisonment was nothing compared to what we find now. Uh, now, let me refresh your memory. Uh, by the way, uh, in the, uh, our congregational prayer this morning, um, she used a word I picked up that is, a beautiful word. The word was unhindered. That's the last word in the book of Acts. Great word. I want to come back to that a little bit later. But Paul, after he got out of his first imprisonment, made a missionary trip uh, up into Spain, spent some time there, uh, being on mission, preaching, uh, probably starting churches. And then he comes back to Rome. 
And it's there in Rome, and he's about 70 years of age. Now, I can identify. I'm 70 right now, and I was thinking as I was working on this message, wow, I'm about the same age as Paul was as he was in the Mamertine prison. And uh, he's arrested, and uh, the, the emperor is Caesar Nero, and the guy was a megalomaniac. Um, you may have seen the picture. I think I've got it here of of, of uh, Caesar, Nero, uh, fiddling while Rome burns. You see, what he wanted to do, what Nero wanted to do was to basically burn the city down and so he could rebuild it to his own specs and, and point to his own glory and fame and be remembered for rebuilding Rome. He did fiddle while Rome burned. He could care less. And Nero was a, an ungodly, evil, lecherous, megalomaniac. I believe that Paul, some church historians say that, that Paul may have had an opportunity to witness to him. And it's then when Nero went off his rocker. He started uh, burning Christians. Uh, he would, he would uh, pour oil or wax uh, on Christians and set them afire. And he would say, Christians say they're the light of the world. Well, yeah, they're the light of the world and would burn them. Uh, he would talk about how their uh, Christians are cannibalistic because they eat the body and blood of their, of their Lord. And, and Nero was horrific and brought great, great persecution to uh, Christians. He imprisoned Paul in the worst dungeon and the worst prison in Rome. It was, it was set at the bottom of the Capitoline Hill. It was more like a hole in the ground with a grate on top. And in order to be, if you were thrown into the Mamertine prison, the grate was lifted up and there were uh, stairs that you, could, you had to go down in or sometimes dropped in by a soldier of Praetorian Guard or whatever. It was dank. It was dark. It was chilly. You know, in the fourth chapter, Paul writes uh, to Timothy and says, the next person that comes to see me, please have him bring me a cloak. It's cold, basically. These were horrid, horrid uh, uh, situations in, in the situation he found himself in. But there are three simple things I want to share with you today in the time that I have left. And I hope I can get through uh, much of it before we... we um, uh, you know, kind of time gets away from us. The first thing that I believe Paul would say to you and me here at Compass Fellowship Church, here in the 21st century uh, of life, doing life together here in, in North America, is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look here at this verse here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 again, where he says, listen, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, and love and self-control. That word fear there in the Greek is dylia, which has the connotation of timidity, fearfulness, or cowardice. In the first century uh, secular literature, uh, this word is used to refer to a person who has fled from battle due to cowardice. Dylia in its full connotation is in direct contrast and the polar opposite of being bold. And I want to tell you 
whether you want to admit it or not, many of us probably have some kind of uh, fear that kind of racks our bodies and racks our brains and racks our emotional stability. Uh, my daughter, uh, Gail, uh, we have an in-law apartment where we live with our, our daughter, son-in-law, and two grandkids. My daughter has, is, uh, has a fear of spiders. We call that arachnophobia. How many of you are familiar with arachnophobia? Maybe some of you even have arachnophobia. She just cannot stand to look at a, at a spider. But there are other phobias. For instance, there's a social phobia where we're afraid of being around groups of people. There's claustrophobia, very common fear or phobia where we have a fear of, of enclosed spaces. It's believed that 5% of the, of the American population is claustrophobic. Um, there's um, uh, one called brontophobia, fear of thunderstorms. Uh, there's acrophobia, fear of heights. Well, um, if I had to choose one that I constantly had to deal with was the uh, what is called a zoophobia where it's kind of an umbrella term that involves an extreme fear of certain animals. I'm from South Louisiana and from the time I was a kid I had a fear of snakes. I had a fear of reptiles and I've seen growing up in South Louisiana I've seen my share of snakes, alligators, the whole shooting match. I can't stand them. Do you want to know the secret of my longevity here in New York City and New Jersey? There's not that many snakes and alligators up here. Man, I, and now I have people, you know, Pastor Daniel, why I decided to retire in New Jersey. Uh, but there's, I'm not alone. I love uh, uh, Moses. In, back in Exodus chapter 4, you know, when God was calling Moses, and he looked, and God said to Moses, he says, Moses, what is that in your hand? And uh, Moses said, oh, that's a rod. That's my rod. That's what I used to corral the sheep with. And God says, throw it on the ground, Moses. And the scripture says in verse 3 of chapter 4, he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Moses and I, we had the same phobias. I love it. You know, if, if Moses can have a phobia, I guess so can I. Well, uh, anyway, listen, ungodly fear should have no place in a Christ follower's life. And fortunately, God gives grace. He gives uh, the, the, the ability to overcome those uh, phobias or those fears or whatever. You know, the most oft-repeated phrase in the Bible is, is one that brings such great hope. God says to, to, to uh, his people, he says, fear not. It's the most often repeated phrase in scripture. Fear not. We're told only to fear God. Now that word, for instance, as it's used in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13, where it says, fear God and keep his commandments, the Hebrew word for fear that is, is Yahweh. And it, it means to simply have deep reverence for, to revere, to be in awe of, to be enthralled by. Listen, to his people, God says, I want you to be in awe of me because I'm bigger, I'm more powerful, I'm more transcendent, 
and than anything you might face on this earth. We must see God as the most majestic being in our lives. So you have big problems, big fears. Well, guess what? If you know Jesus, you've got a bigger God, and we have no reason to fear. Let me tell you, fear, and I can just imagine me being in Paul's place in this Mamertine prison. I'd be, I'd probably be dead by now. He'd, I'd be so afraid and scared, but, but not Paul. There's some reasons why Paul had no fear. You know, if you read in, starting in verse 3 of chapter 1, we see that he was thankful. Uh, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. He was thankful. Uh, he, he was forgiven. He had a clear conscience. He was prayerful as he prayed for, for, for young Timothy back in, in, uh, uh, in Ephesus. And he was hopeful. He says, I long to see you when I get out of here. He had hope that he was going to be released. Of course, we know now that he was not, but he was hopeful. He was encouraged as he recalls Timothy's sincere faith and the heritage of faith in Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. He himself was encouraged by observing their faith. He was also prophetic in the sense of he was encouraging Timothy to be on mission and serve, to fan into flame the gift of God. And so uh, Paul says to, to young Timothy, he says, you just keep practicing and serving out of those ministry gifts that God has given you. He was too busy serving while he was in prison to allow fear to come into his life. You know, one of my favorite verses in all of the scripture, if I sense that fear is beginning to uh, make itself known, I love Isaiah 41 verse 10, where God, through the prophet Isaiah, says to Israel, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I'm reading out of the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible because I love this next phrase where he says, I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Did you catch that? God says, I will hold on to you. HCSB, Holman Christian. I like to call it the hardcore Southern Baptist version, HCSB. But anyway, Isaiah 41, don't be afraid. So Paul's word for you and me today is don't be afraid. No matter what is going on around you, what circumstances you're experiencing, uh, no matter how bad the stock market has fallen and, and you've lost half your retirement savings, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I am with you. I am holding on to you with my righteous right hand. But the second thing that he's going to share with us today and encourage us with, he's going to say to us, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Look here at verse, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Listen, folks, we should never, ever be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be, 
Be ashamed of the kingdom of God. Now remember, Paul is writing to a young pastor who might be a little discouraged by all the stuff happening in Ephesus. And, and you know, Ephesus was part of the Roman Empire. Timothy was young. He might have been embarrassed or maybe a little ashamed that his father in the faith, his mentor, was in jail. And Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be, I'm here for a reason. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. The number one thing that we must never be ashamed of is Jesus and the kingdom. A pastor, a young couple had just joined the church, and uh, they were looking forward to being involved in some of the, the ministry projects the church was doing. And they were particularly looking forward to going into the city and hand out uh, 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 bags of food and, and serve. And, and these, this young couple had not been believers very long. And, and the pastor uh, said, now, as you're handing out, but just be careful. You don't have to mention Jesus if you don't want to. We're, we're there to kind of help and serve. Folks, some of us may be guilty of saying that or having that feeling. We must never be ashamed of Jesus. The word here, and I believe I've got the slide up for uh, the definition of shame. Uh, the Greek word is epihushkunamai, a really fun word to say, to learn how to say. But uh, it means to feel shame for something, to be ashamed. Shame is the painful feeling arising from one's consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous, a disgrace brought about by yourself or someone else or something else. It's, the, it's that feeling you get when you want to hang your head when you've been found out. You're ashamed. Don't be ashamed, though, about the life and work of Jesus and especially what he's doing in your life. You know, Jesus was sent from God. He was fully human, fully God. He lived a life as a servant. And those who'd followed Jesus and saw firsthand the amazing, incredible things that he did, they were amazed. They were incredibly amazed and astonished. But at the same time, Jesus was showing himself to be redeemer and savior of the world, he eschewed, he, he pushed away the temptation to use power and control. He pushed away anything that, that, that might cause him to succumb to the temptation of becoming more powerful or controlling more people. He eschewed that. He, he stayed away from it. He, he, he shoved it back. He resisted it. He rejected it. Here's what he did. He simply loved God and he loved people. And, and that's another reason why Paul was not afraid in prison because Paul was one who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved people. Just as he says, Timothy, I love you. I love you, I love you because uh, I see what God's doing in your life. And I love your, your grandmother and your mom. I've known them since they were saved. He loved God. He loved people. And Jesus, Jesus poured out his life in ministry to others. One of the books I've been recently reading is a, is a fascinating book by Dr. Kristen Kobes. Dumez out of Calvin University. She teaches history there. And in her 
most recent book that has been a New York Times bestseller. It's called Jesus and John Wayne. I encourage you to read it. She, she points out something that I'd never really thought about. She says, in recent years, American evangelicals have worked tirelessly over several decades to replace the Jesus of the Gospels with an idol of rugged masculinity and American Christian nationalism. This is the thrust of her book, and it just really resonated with me and, and caused me to ponder to, to, as, as I said, you know, she's just really on to something. Are we really ashamed of the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, of the Beatitudes? Seriously, are we ashamed of the Jesus who reached out to those who were hurting, who had lost hope, those who had been rejected by society as he loved them and touched them? Are we really ashamed of that Jesus? Folks, listen, we must never, ever be ashamed uh, of Jesus. So I'm going to put that slide up where, where the, this declaration of I am not ashamed. Notice what Paul says here in verse 12, and I love it. He says, starting in verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted in me. Paul in prison. If anyone had a right to be ashamed of being arrested and being in this horrible prison, it could have been Paul, but he never once was ashamed. He says, I am not ashamed. I want to show you a picture of a guy by the, by the name of Michael Faraday. You need to know, some of you may know who Michael Faraday uh, was, a, a brilliant 19th century scientist um, in an article uh, that was published some years ago by Sir John Thomas. He argued that if Michael Faraday had been living in the era of the Nobel Prize, he would have been worthy of at least eight of them. You see what happened with Faraday? He was fascinated with electricity. He discovered the concept of the electromagnetic field and laid the foundation for modern electric motor technology. So the next time you ride a New York City subway, you can thank the Lord for Michael Faraday. He's the one who kind of came up with the whole idea of the electric motor. And in 1867, he was very, very close to his death. Uh, a friend, a colleague one who was at one time, he was mentoring, came by and said, Sir Michael, what are your speculations now? So you see, this friend was trying to introduce some levity and some joy and happiness into uh, Michael Faraday's uh, life as he was dying. He understood that Faraday's career had consisted of making speculations about science and then running into the closest laboratory he could find to try to prove or disprove his theories. You know, it was a very reasonable thing for him to say, but Faraday took his challenge very seriously. He looked up at his former colleague with, with eyes that pierced, and he looked up at his friend and he said, speculations, man? Speculations? I have none. 
I have certainties. I thank my God that I don't rest my dying head upon speculations. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now, I want to close by showing you one more thing. We don't have a lot of time, but I do want to uh, share with you one more thing. The third challenge or admonishment that Paul would share with us today is this. Do not be distracted. Do not be distracted. I want to introduce to you by name some of the folks that the Apostle Paul ministered to uh, over the years as he was recalling with Timothy some of their names. Starting in uh, chapter uh, 1 here, uh, let's start reading in verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Wow, that's a, that's, that's a, a frightening statement. There were some folks who actually turned away from Paul in his ministry. He says, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, people who were with Paul, probably came to faith under Paul's ministry, but they turned their backs on him. They left. May the Lord grant mercy, though, to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know the service he rendered at Ephesus. Now, three people we've been introduced to so far, two so far, and two of them have already left the church and left Paul behind. Uh, hang on to that. Let's go to chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 4, starting with verse 9. Do your best to come to, to, me, to see me soon. That's to Timothy. He was encouraging uh, uh, Timothy to come see him. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke, Dr. Luke, the author of, of uh, Acts, and of course the Gospel. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And then uh, look uh, in verse 15, he says, Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. All deserted me. We think the Apostle Paul, you know, as pastors, we revere him and we set him on a shelf where he's the pastor of all pastors. But even some of his parishioners deserted him. I want you to see with me in verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Those were believers back in Rome. Now, why do I, I bring this up? 
It is so easy to get distracted by the things of this world. As believers, as followers of Christ, as, as people who make up the body of Christ, his church, we can get easily distracted. Just as Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, he says, and uh, as uh, 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 Hermogenes and Phygelus, uh, uh, they, they turned away. There are going to be folks who are going to get distracted. And now Paul is going to say, I wanted to tell you just a little bit about my friend Onesiphorus. Uh, there's not a lot written about Onesiphorus. Uh, and we've read basically all that is written about Onesiphorus, but I've come to see him as a spiritual hero. And I, I just kind of, based upon the few scriptures that we have, I just want to kind of share with you a little bit about Onesiphorus. Uh, his name means benefit-bringing or profit-bearing. In all likelihood, he was a successful businessman who traveled a great deal. Uh, the word Paul uses here in chapter 1, uh, verse 16, the word refresh, this word has to deal with uh, to cool, to revive by fresh air. It was used to describe the cooling down of a hot beverage in order so you can drink it. By application, it means to be an encourager to others by refreshing them and cooling them down in the heat of life's battles. Onesiphorus was coming to, to minister and visit Paul. I, I want to I just kind of construct with you in the room about five minutes what Onesiphorus' last few weeks of life might have been. He made the journey from Ephesus. As a successful businessman, he had the resources, and he came to Rome, and not only to check on his business, but to see his beloved pastor, Paul, who was in prison. When he got there, he had to ask around. He didn't know about the Mamertine prison at first. He kept at no, no one knows where Paul is. But suddenly one day he happened upon a, an individual where, who said to him, you know, I was in court when they uh, arrested this Paul, this, this Christ followers, this Jesus person that you're asking about. And I think they put him in the Mamertine prison, if I'm not mistaken. So Onesiphorus probably, and this is all you know, conjecture, but I'm trying to draw you a picture. He makes his way over. He says, I am going to find Paul, my father in the faith, if it's the last thing I do. He finds the Mamertine prison. There's Praetorian guards guarding. He walks up to one of the guards and says, Might I ask if there is in this prison a man by the name of Paul, a follower of Jesus? He says, and the soldier says, You know, there is. Why do you ask? And uh, Onesiphorus says, Well, I'm a friend. Could I see him? Nope, we don't allow visitors. We don't allow, you cannot see Paul. But from his cloak, he pulls out a little bag. It's a bag of, of gold. You know, he's a successful businessman. He slips it into the hand of the guard and says, could I see Paul? He, he's very important to me. And the guard says, well, okay. And the grate is moved and he climbs down into the 
dungeon. And there, quite aged and quite frail, is his, his pastor, his friend, his colleague, the man who poured his life into him. Onesiphorus says, I can't believe it. I'm actually seeing him. And he falls into the arms of the Apostle Paul, and they embrace. And, and they visit. And Paul says, hey, if you're going to be here in Rome for a while, can you bring me a few things? And so the next day, Onesiphorus comes back. He slips another little bag into the guard's hand, and the guard lets him in. And several days go on as Onesiphorus continues to make visits, bringing him uh, paper and, and papyrus and a pen and, and maybe a coat. Who knows? But one day, a thieving, corrupt, slimy, uh, uh, partisan hack of Nero sees what's going on, and he runs to Tegelinus, who is Nero's secretary of state, and says, there's someone going to see Paul. He's slipping him money. He must be rich. Here's what we'll do. Can I make a deal with you? If I point you out to this man, you can arrest him and get whatever he's got, steal from him. Just give me a little cut of it. And Tegelinus, an evil uh, uh, assistant to Nero, says, let's do it. And so they await in the shadows of the Capitoline Hill, and sure enough, Onesiphorus comes to make one of his daily visits. And this guy says to Tegelinus, there he is, that's him. Tegelinus orders his soldiers to arrest him. And that day, he was not able to visit his pastor. Uh, if he, if, if um, uh, Onesiphorus is a Provincial, he's going to be uh, beheaded. Uh, if he is not a, a uh, uh, citizen of Rome, he's going to be thrown to the lions. But from that day on, Onesiphorus is absent. Paul wonders what has happened to Onesiphorus. Maybe Luke, who was with him, says, uh, I think I heard that he was arrested. Onesiphorus never made a return visit. He didn't come. He didn't come. And, and, and Paul, as though he didn't have trouble and sorrow enough, he picks up his pen and he writes these words, The Lord give mercy unto the household of Onesiphorus, back in Ephesus, his family. And when he closed the letter, the last salutation he ever wrote was, Salute to the household of Onesiphorus. For he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently, and he found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. Folks, let me tell you, I'd like to meet Onesiphorus one day. And one day I will because he has a special place in glory, I'm convinced. I want to meet Onesiphorus. I'd like to shake his hand. I'd like to bow my head in his presence and say, thank you, Onesiphorus, for showing me what it means to be a kingdom Christian. For that's what it means. And today I think we can learn from his example. Onesiphorus, totally unafraid to, to, to wander around Rome looking for his pastor, his mentor, totally unashamed of Christ, 
willing to die, totally unashamed of, of his pastor Paul, totally unashamed and totally undistracted and undeterred from being on mission. The very last word in the book of Acts is unhindered. Onesiphorus is a picture of the church in North America today. We, too, ought to be totally unafraid, totally unashamed, and totally unhindered from what God is calling us to do in these crazy, chaotic times. I want to challenge you today to be in Onesiphorus here at Compass Fellowship Church. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for the picture you have given us today of a kingdom Christian, someone like Onesiphorus, who doesn't get much ink in, in the Bible, but one who remarkably demonstrates uh, how we as believers and Christ followers ought to serve in, the, in these chaotic times. Lord, give us the victory over our fears. Lord, help us never ever to be ashamed of what we do as believers. Help us, Lord, to be continually on mission for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.